I know for a fact that there are a lot of kids at this school that can't afford a computer, much less the internet. What are we going to do about it? Welcome to episode 218 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. The idea for Eliminate the Digital Divide, also known as E2D, began in 2012, and today the nonprofit has grown by leaps and bounds. The North Carolina organization finds a way to bring computers and low-cost internet access to school kids in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system. Since internet access is critical today for online homework assignments and research, Pat Millen and his family felt the need to help others. The next thing they knew, Pat was president and one of the co-founders of E2D, and the organization was working with volunteers, corporate supporters, and municipal leaders to get low-income students connected at home. E2D works with one of the municipal networks we cover, My Connection, to bring ongoing internet access to families that use the program. Listen for how a publicly owned network approaches such a program that is meant to lift up members of the community. For more on the organization, check out the E2D website at e-the-number-2-d.org. Now here are Chris and Pat Millen, co-founder and president of Eliminate the Digital Divide. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Pat Millen, a co-founder and president of E2D, Eliminate the Digital Divide. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So the last time we talked, uh, we were on a webinar with uh, Next Century Cities, and I made a little joke about uh, E2D and, and wondering if that was named after a uh, Star Wars character. Um, <laughs> it was such a good joke, I decided to bring it back, <laughs> inexplicably perhaps. <laughs> um, tell me, how did uh, Eliminate the Digital Divide come to be? Yeah, so it's it's actually kind of a neat story. This was uh, four years ago, basically. My daughter, who was 12 years old at the time, came home from her local public middle school and said, Dad, I don't get it. Every single assignment we get in school assumes that you have a computer at home to do the work. And I know for a fact that there are a lot of kids at this school that can't afford a computer, much less the internet. And that just doesn't really seem fair to me. What are we going to do about it? And it was just one of those really insightful questions that my daughter brought up. And, and it was one that as a family, we just kind of got stuck on it and said, you know what? We live in a community in Davidson, North Carolina, and a broader community in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the disparity between the very rich and the very poor is pretty wide, but there's no reason in the world that there aren't ways for us to work together to help provide basic technology for these families that would really struggle to achieve that, achieve obtaining that themselves. And so this is the part that I think is, is really great, which is that you actually went and took action and started doing something. So what did you do first? Well, we, th- we, <laughs> we try to think big, but to start with, we thought we'd start small. So we try to we went to the local elementary school and just went to the principal and the counselors and said, and, and by the way, we had already talked to the mayor of the town and said, this is, seems ridiculous that there really are these pockets of digital exclusion. What do you think we can do about it? And he said, well, let's start at the elementary school. So we went to the principal and said, hey, can you count the number of families that you don't think have the internet available to them at home? 
And he said, yeah, give me two days because we know that the teachers know very specifically who doesn't have the internet. There are lots of clues, you know, they don't have email addresses for the family. That would be one. So long story short, the principal came back after a couple of days and said, we have exactly 54 families at this school that we are very certain don't have the internet at home. And so as a family, we said, okay, let's figure out a way how we can come up with a solution for these 54 families. And our presumption at the time was that $300 would probably, we'd be able to afford getting some sort of a basic computer for them as well as a year of highly discounted internet. So we were looking at solutions that would cost about $300 a piece. And so we're going, okay, that's about $15,000 that we have to raise from our community. By the way, our community that has plenty of high net worth individuals and neighborhoods, let's go raise that $15,000. And then we started to think about it a little more, you know, we, you know, one way to raise $15,000 is to go to somebody wealthy in town and say, Hey, give us $15,000. We want to solve this societal issue in our town. But the more we thought about it, we said, you know what, that's not a sustainable solution that fixes a quick problem, but we ought to look into coming up with bigger, more sustainable solutions so that if this thing works, if we can get a buy-in at the $50, $100, my daughter did a lemonade stand and raised $16. If we could raise the $15,000 that way and get the community to become the solution as opposed to just a couple of people or one company, now we're actually coming up with a, a more sustainable solution. And I want to I wanna get back to talking more about that solution, but let's let's just go down one quick side road, and that's why is it important to have access in the home, uh, whereas I'm, I'm guessing your community has public libraries and perhaps other places where a family might be able to go to get Internet access from time to time? Right. So I, I think we need to think in the most practical senses. We, we like to think about the families after we're able to help them get a computer and the Internet at home. But prior to them getting one of our computers and one of our solutions, we think about a kid researching papers using just this tiny cell phone screen, right? That's incredibly difficult. You can't type a paper on a telephone. I've made that point many times, yes. <laughs> yeah, but then think about the kids staying after school in the media center at the school until the very last second that the janitor needs to lock the door so that he can do his work. And then think about the same kid walking through all kinds of weather to get to the public library to hop on one of their computers. Right. And if I could just jump in for a second, yeah. one of our best libraries in St. Paul is in an area that's next to a half-abandoned strip mall. You have all kinds of, of activities happening there that you don't want kids exposed to when they're trying to get their homework done. Well, that's exactly right. Think about that same kid walking home in the dark through some of the toughest neighborhoods in the area. Think about the kid while he's on the computer at the library getting tapped out because he's used his time allocation and there are 25 other people in line waiting to get on a computer. And so there's a limited amount of time. And then think about this very same kid going to the motions of walking through the rain and the dark or the heat and the sun to get to the library that's two miles from his house. And then think of him taking measure of his life's prospects. I can't get this work done. 
I'm not going to be able to pass this class. My family is so poor. Shouldn't I just go ahead and drop out and go try to find a job? And it's at that moment that you see the ultimate impact of what E2D eliminate the digital divide is. Every kid that gets a computer and connectivity has that greater chance to be successful and to have a positive outcome with his academic experience in school. And every one of those kids that graduates that might otherwise not have graduated, that kid has a chance to really change his life in a different way, a positive way. Right. And so let's get back to the, uh, I, th- I would say, the two familiar challenges with eliminating the digital divide, and, and you address both of them. The first is a physical computer. Um, how do you deal with that? What's your solution? So our original solution was we were just going to buy really, really inexpensive computers off of eBay or go to Best Buy and buy Chromebooks when they were on mega sale. And then about three months into our existence, I had spoken to our, our local, the company, the largest company that's local to where we live is Lowe's. Their corporate headquarters is a couple miles down the road. And so I went to a friend of mine at Lowe's who was relatively up on the organizational chart. And I said, you guys got computers that decommission from time to time. You think there's any chance we can get our hands on those? And he said, yeah, let me get back to you and see what we can do. About a week later, he called me and said, we're going to get you guys 500 laptops (laughs) indefinitely. That's pretty great. It's an unbelievable amount of laptops and really a total game changer for us because we were able to receive these laptops. We then went to Microsoft and said, hey, do you have any way for us to purchase inexpensive operating systems or productivity software? And they're like, yep, you guys qualify brilliantly since you are repurposing computers that have already had our licenses. You can put new licenses on them, but we're not going to charge very much money for them. We also then had the wonderful um, fortune of running into a gentleman who had just retired from Duke Energy as a computer engineer. And this gentleman, Al Suttif, took it upon himself to re-image all of these computers from Lowe's with this new software And the next thing you know, we've got 500 solutions that we're now ready to bring forth. And so from that moment, we got into the business of talking to companies and begging them for their decommissioning inventory. And the story's just been great from there. We have been able to come up with solutions now for over 1,200 families in the area. We're now working primarily in Charlotte Center with uh, five of the lowest income high schools in Charlotte. Uh, What's exciting about that is the 1,200 families that we've served. What's even more exciting is we're going to serve 1,000 families between now and Thanksgiving. We're essentially doubling in size in the next three months over our entire three-and-a-half-year existence. That's great. Now, you know, I I feel like there's this moment where someone like me, if I was in the audience, might be thinking, you know, this is, it's really wonderful what you've done. I would not take anything away from that. But if I'm thinking holistically, I I don't want the United States to be dependent on a, a family in Davidson thinking, how can we solve this problem and going out to find these companies that are supportive 
and that sort of thing. But I, it's this, it's, it is the sort of thing where, where I think it shows that when you're in a community and you take action, you can make things happen. When you when you start asking around, people are of good faith, and and you can find these sorts of solutions and put them together. Um, at least that's something that I think I take away from it. Would you? Mm-hmm. Is that is that accurate? The first thing I would say is that what started as a family discussion very quickly became hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. This is no longer just a mom and pop shop. We have lots of people that give just dozens and hundreds of hours to us to help make this happen now. Ultimately, though, I do think these are solutions that exist in lots of places. I I feel like every city has hiding in plain sight thousands and thousands of computers in office buildings. And yes, everybody has some plan, plus or minus, as to what they're going to do with their computers. Some of them do send them to recyclers. Some of, some of them sell them to their employees. But in just asking for laptops, we've been able to come up with quite a few sources that believe in what we do. Chris, that's one point that I'd really like to make. When I say, this is what we do, we try to get computers that people don't need anymore. We try to fix them and get them to people who need them desperately. Will you help make an investment in what it is that we're doing by making a donation to us? I don't care where you are on the political spectrum, in a faith-based spectrum. Everybody understands why that is beneficial to society. It is absolutely the easiest ask you could ever make to say, you don't want it anymore. We can make it work for somebody else in ways that has never worked for these people before. So that's, I think, a great description of how we can move forward and how you have moved forward very successfully with getting the physical devices that people need in their homes to be able to do this work and uh, be able to access the Internet to do homework and all of that. The next challenge is the recurring expense of Internet access. And to some extent, I think this is where I get really interested because – and I'll just – I'll try and give a very brief synopsis so we don't spend too much time on it. But um, you're in a community, one of two, David in Mooresville where the city operates a cable network because um, years ago uh, you had this company Adelphia that went bankrupt and uh, the city had the right to build to buy the network from them and it did although you know I think it's important to note that that in buying it it estimated it would need a certain amount of money and when it bought the network it found that that network needed far more work and actually had fewer subscribers than it had been told and so therefore went immediately into a um, uh, loss mode. It was losing money and it was very frustrating for people um, that they were then having to subsidize the network in ways that were not expected. Um, but I think a flip side of that is that the network has to be more responsive to the community than if Time Warner Cable was up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if you can, well, first of all, if you would uh, amend anything that I've said, but but how you went about working with the cable network to make sure people would have uh, recurring access without it breaking the bank. Yeah, so everything you said is exactly true. The company is called My Connection. It is frequently called lots of other things by the the municipal owners, all the citizens, because it has become a bit of a tricky debt load for these municipalities. And I think it's slowly over time going to justify its purchase. But the bottom line is, is I went to the people on the board of my connection and said, hey, I'm one of the people that owns this company. 
<laughs> and so this is what we are doing. And we really need you to make a significant gesture to low-income families in this area that couldn't possibly afford your bandwidth at commercial prices, but for whom it is so critically important. And the good news is, is every single one of these families that we can help make into My Connection customers at this other level, almost by definition, is upwardly mobile. We think if you wire these houses and that these families become more successful and you know, begin to tilt the spiral of intergenerational poverty toward a more successful life outcome, they're going to be buying HBO from you soon enough. You help us, we'll help you. And they came up with a plan that might cost me 90 or or $100 that they were willing to offer to our client partners for $14 a month with a qualification, you know, based on free and reduced lunch and other sorts of aspects that define the families as being low income. And that's right. worked really, really well. Excellent. So was there a discussion about it or, I mean, um, you know, was there any pushback or was this something that the board was more or less immediately thinking, well, that makes sense to us? You know, there was no pushback whatsoever. Um, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that the way I sort of proposed it to them was to say, you know what, you guys need a positive story. <laughs> you need to be telling stories about why my connection is so great for our area beyond just having cable and trying to keep the Adelphia infrastructure alive. There's so much negative press about this group. Uh, there has been over the life period that it's been a municipally owned company. We just went to him and said, listen, this is an automatic win. If you are helping this many people achieve what their kids need to see done at the school level, this is, this is great for our community. It's great for your company. I mean, let's do this thing. And I was expecting some resistance. I got no resistance. They're like, fantastic. This is a great idea. So then it's worth noting that uh, family's going to pay uh, $14 a month for internet service, and um, the physical hardware is not free, right? Well, what's the uh, expectation from the family? Right. So the original plan that we did with our families um, in Davidson and Cornelius, which is all, Cornelius, North Carolina, is also under the My Connection group, was they paid um, basically $10 a month for a year. And what they got for their 10 months is they've got, they got the internet through my connection. We partially subsidized that. They got a really good refurbished laptop with OS, Microsoft OS 7 and Microsoft Office 2010. And then they also got digital literacy training. We used a ton, a ton of local volunteers, many of whom are Davidson College students who just very generously donated time to help these families understand and appreciate what impact beyond just going online a computer can have on a family. And then I think there's one other piece that I wanted to raise up regarding how this works and um, with regard to my connection. And that's the Comcast program, which is very similar, $10 a month for a uh, connection, um, is famously difficult to navigate. And we've had some experience with um, with people that I know who had trouble just working their way through the bureaucracy. And one of the things I always hope is that when it comes to a locally owned network, there will be much less of that. And these programs would be much smoother for these families to navigate. Has that been the case? 
In the model that I just described, it was definitely the case because we worked with the families to establish that connection with my connection. We actually paid that bill for the first year, so all their bills came to us. But after the first year, then the billing would go to those families, but they would have experienced a budgeting pattern and sort of you know, be prepared for that. So after the first year, they became my connection customers to the extent that they received the bill at their home. And there have been very few that have turned it off. I mean, it now has become a part of their, a critical part of their lives. What I would say, generally speaking, though, is that the three-legged stool, which is digital inclusion, which is devices, connectivity, and digital literacy terraining, um, three years ago, I would have told you that connectivity was really going to be by far the most vexing aspect of how we were going to be able to help families. Because not, you know, particularly moving into Charlotte, I don't have a municipal network available for me to say, hey, let's do the right thing. We've got all the regular usual suspects in Charlotte. We've got Time Warner Cable, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, now Google Fiber. And what was going to make that a streamlined process where we would be able to have offers that would be reasonable for our families? I thought that was going to be a problem forever. And I'm just so excited about the fact that so many of these companies see the value of why they should be working with low-income families to establish an entry-level point that, that families can handle. The other piece I was curious about is what is the the rate, or the connection rate for the low-income families in my connection? So they're getting, I think, 20 by 5, um, which is okay. Yeah, well, that's actually better than on average from what I've seen of these programs. I mean, there's some of these yeah. programs are remarkably fast, like Chattanooga, although it's a little bit more expensive and that's complicated for why. Um, but most of the connections seem to be like 10 by 1 or 15 by 1, something like that. So 20 by 5 is remarkable. 20 by 5 is remarkable. I think um, the new Google Fiber plan in Charlotte that's going to be 25 up, 25 down yes, for $15 a month, that is just incredibly incredibly strong right and that's you know to some extent that's also something you can do obviously the symmetrical you need a fiber high quality wireless to do the symmetrical high upload um but it's also the bigger the network is the more that you can offer those faster connections without impacting the bottom line of the network in any way yeah no no question and i i gotta tell you i give a lot of credit i love all telecoms equally because that's the way we need to deal with everybody. But what I will say is that Google Fiber, in coming to Charlotte a couple of years ago, and it does seem like it's taken forever for them to dig up these holes and get everybody online, but they're really doing it. They're not just going to high-income neighborhoods and towns. They're also, as they're building out this network, they're working with lots of neighborhoods that fall very comfortably into the E2D land. I think they're doing a great job as corporate citizens to not just build out networks for people that can afford gigabit speed, but to also provide connectivity along the way for lots and lots of neighborhoods. And over time, it's going to be hopefully everybody that needs that. Yes, I, I hope so. I, I, my observation has been that, um, and I'll, 
I'll pick on some of these companies like AT&T and Verizon, I think have been very reluctant to build out beyond the best audiences. In my mind, Google will build out to just about everyone. They they have left some people behind in some areas, but as far as companies that are using a market-driven model go, I think Google has been much more aggressive at trying to connect everyone than most of its competitors in this space. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think AT&T's new program is pretty good, the $10 program that they're offering. I think it's one of these things where, you know, the pressure begins with the government, with the FCC saying, "Uh, uh, uh, we gave you some of the spectrum. We really need you to respect all of the citizens. But when companies like My Connection and Google Fiber, and now I think AT&T and and Sprint's got a new program that's going to be coming online. By the time you add that with the Lifeline program, everybody's going to have to come to a certain level to, to meet each other at some point. Now, whether or not they obscure these offers with incredibly difficult hurdles to jump over from a paperwork or from a device standpoint, that remains to be seen. But I am encouraged that the folks that are sort of setting those new lower levels, a lot of companies seem to realize that they're need, they're going to need to get there as well if they're not on their way already. The last thing that I wanted to make sure we cover is something that I think comes up a lot when you're dealing with uh, programs to help uh, make sure that everyone in, in our society has uh, access to common infrastructure or uh, other other aspects of life that are necessary. And that's whether or not being a part of these programs is stigmatizing. And I'm curious to, to any extent if you've seen, um, you know, a, uh, any kind of um, potential for shaming or if you've tried to structure the program in ways that would make sure um, families did not feel ashamed in needing to take a laptop from you and have this service and how you've wrestled with at all with that i'll be honest with you i don't think we really see much of that at all now i don't do exit interviews with everybody to say how did you feel today when you got your computers but what i can tell you is is that first of all we have lots of different kinds of computers that go out the door so it's not like government cheese where everybody shows up and takes the exact same block of cheese with them our computers are we're, we're handing out Ford Tauruses. We're not handing out BMWs. <laughs> we're not handing out Yugos. We're handing out Lenovo ThinkPads. And they all look plus or minus the same. And they don't have E2D stickers on them announcing, hey, look at me. I qualified for the E2D program. These are computers, right? They're, they're commodities. You know, they're, they're, they're HPs. They're Dells. They're Lenovos. I don't think if you acquire an E2D computer that one day later anyone would have the slightest idea how you came to obtain that computer. Great. Well, that's actually, I mean, that's definitely a good reason to engage in procurement the way you have with um, with looking at um, some of these local resources, getting the computers and make sure you get a, um, a hetero- heterogeneous, no, I'm not yeah. going to pronounce that word right. Um, make sure that you get a, a stock of computers that are not in any way distinguishable. So let me ask one final just, I think, question on the personal level, which is, you know, I, I'm very impressed that a family that says, yes, this is a problem, and yes, we are going to do something about it. When you go back to your daughter bringing that problem home, you know, I wonder, was there a point where you were just thinking, oh, I don't know, like, are we going to are we gonna try and fail? Are we going to, you know, like, is this going to be worth our effort? You know, what was, did, did you have any doubts as you were working on it? I don't operate in doubt. 
I mean, I've sort of been a serial entrepreneur all of my life. I've run a sports marketing business for 25 years. And, you know, E2D was based on one pilot going to the next pilot going to the next pilot. We made mistakes along the way and we fixed mistakes along the way. But after a certain amount of time, I just kept seeing more and more opportunity for us to have more impact within the Charlotte community. And it got to a point where I just said, you know what, I think it's time to move and do this full time. So I basically retired from my sports marketing company and do this all the time. And that's not necessarily sustainable in the sense that not everyone has a wife that has a good job that can make that sort of thing happen. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, this is really feels like a calling. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to tell us more about E2D. I think it's a very inspiring approach, and I hope that it does inspire others to copy it. So uh, thank you very much for all your time today. Thank you, Chris. That was Chris and Pat Millen, co-founder and president of Eliminate the Digital Divide, or E2D. They were talking about the E2D program in North Carolina that brings computers and affordable internet access to homes of school kids in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area. Remember, we have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, too, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Roller Genoa for their song Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 218 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.